Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of It Could Happen. We begin this episode with the events of Wednesday, September 30th, just 34 days from Election Day. Former Vice President Joe Biden is still incapacitated. Vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris is doing her best to campaign in his place. President Trump seems to have regained his stride. He is relentlessly attacking Democrats as the un-American radical left party that is going to raise your taxes, take away your guns, take away your history, and ruin his own 1950s version of suburbia by letting anyone live there and letting anarchists and Antifa take over major cities. What could possibly happen next? Good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on Wednesday, September 30th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. Because of the alarming and even shocking news surrounding the election, we have not lately brought you the equally alarming details of the state of the COVID-19 pandemic, including stunning news regarding the White House Coronavirus Task Force. But first, there has been a surprising increase in the number of children who have tested positive for the coronavirus. The increase is so severe in several Midwestern states that 29 school districts have suspended in-person classes, including seven districts in Kansas, eight in Oklahoma, 11 in South Dakota, and three in Missouri. All of these states, and districts in particular, supported President Trump in 2016, but in each one the Biden campaign has shown a good deal of strength lately. In Oklahoma, for example, a usually solid red state, The latest Real Clear Politics poll shows Biden leading by two points. These states are crucial to the Trump campaign. The president tweeted last evening, after being shown the numbers by his own pollster, that this minor uptick in the coronavirus numbers was only temporary. His next tweet repeated his already discounted view that children are basically immune to the China virus and do not really suffer all that much from it. The schools must open and stay open to get our economy back. Within an hour of the posting of this tweet by the president, Dr. Anthony Fauci called a press conference for 9 a.m. this morning, something he has never done during his tenure as a member of the White House task force. In a brief announcement to the assembled press at the National Institutes of Health, he announced that he had informed the president that he was no longer able to continue on as a member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, effective immediately. I simply cannot continue to serve as a part of a group that is led by someone who so blatantly and continually ignores scientific evidence, even when it is presented to him by his own medical team. He planned to continue on in his role as director of the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. President Trump, clearly upset at the lack of loyalty shown by Dr. Fauci, tweeted his acceptance of the resignation from the task force with this statement. Good riddance to Dr. Fauci. He got so many things wrong in the beginning and has not been a team player. He has outlived his usefulness to the task force. We'll get along just fine with Dr. Redfield and Dr. Burks. There has been no word regarding any further action that the president might take. Dr. Fauci has held his position at the NIAID since 1984 and has advised six presidents. He reports to Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, who was appointed to that position in 2009 by President Obama and confirmed by the Senate. 
Good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on Thursday, October 1st. This is Bill Beckley reporting. Last night's debate was fierce, to say the least. Held at Case Western University outside of Cleveland, it was presented without an audience despite multiple objections to that format by President Trump. In fact, the president showed his displeasure in his response to the opening question. When asked by moderator Chris Wallace of Fox News what his vision of a second term might look like, Trump replied that if it were up to the Commission on Presidential Debates, there would be no second term for me. He then accused Commission co-chair Dorothy S. Ridings of blatant partisanship and a total disregard for the democratic process because she, according to Trump, clearly wants Biden to get all the help he can from the commission. When asked about his inability to hold Russian President Vladimir Putin accountable for alleged bounties paid to the Taliban for the deaths of American soldiers, Trump repeated his stock answer that no one has been tougher on Russia. When it was her turn to respond, Harris lit into the president's failed national security record, starting with Putin, then Kim Jong-un, and then Chinese President Xi. At this point, President Trump went off the rails. He started by calling Senator Harris a nasty person who says horrible things about someone who is doing such a great job. Trump's heated rant continued for so long that despite the incessant ringing of the bell signaling that his time was up, moderator Wallace had to stand up and shout at the president and ask that his microphone be shut off. The bemused look on Senator Harris's face while the exchange took place is certainly one that will be replayed over and over again by the media in the coming weeks and will likely end up in political ads in the near future. Wallace then asked Senator Harris what her vision for a new presidential term might be, and she calmly responded that she would carry out the plans that she and former Vice President Joe Biden have been working on since her candidacy was announced on August 11th being very careful in her response to make sure that it was clear that she indeed believed that Biden would fully recover. She ended her reply with a strongly worded condemnation of virtually everything that has occurred during Trump's first term, especially his stunning incompetence in the area of public health. The blood of tens of thousands of our fellow citizens, she concluded, can be properly laid at the feet of this shallow and hollow human being. Had there been an audience, observed Ed O'Keefe of CBS News, fully half of them would have been on their feet cheering, with the other half trying to drown them out with booze. The strategy of forcing a debate with Senator Harris may have backfired on the Trump campaign. It certainly looks like the president now has two opponents, one whose record is clear and may ultimately recover from a stroke to lead the nation, and his surrogate, who proved that she is not only capable of going toe-to-toe with the president, but that she can do it in a passionate, inspiring, and dignified manner. Good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on Wednesday, October 7th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas remain the only states holding firm to only in-person voting unless a voter is, in general, either out of town, sick or disabled, has a religious commitment, or are in the armed services. Other states that require a reason for voting via absentee ballot have put in place broad exceptions for the November 3rd election. Missouri Governor Mike Parson, a Republican, did not sign a bill passed by his state legislature requiring an absentee ballot be notarized, even if for free, 
stating that it was an unnecessary hindrance to conducting open and fair elections. The Missouri legislature, along party lines, voted to override the veto, almost certainly assuring a Republican victory in November. This is important because Barack Obama nearly carried Missouri in 2008, losing by only 0.14% of the vote. Polls have been showing the show-me state as a statistical tie for months. Good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on Tuesday, October 13th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. At a massive Columbus Day rally in Chicago yesterday, a black protester was shot by a white member of a U.S. military contingent bearing no official insignia. This group of 250 heavily armed troops were sent to Chicago by Attorney General William Barr to shut down the legitimate, peaceful protests that had been developing there all week. It is believed that this military contingent consists of officers from ICE, ATF, and the Bureau of Prisons who have been involved in shutting down other peaceful protests in Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco. After news of the shooting spread through the Chicago area, the city erupted in violence and looting that echoed the disruptions of its Miracle Mile that had occurred back in August. This time, however, the looters were cheered on by the legitimate protesters whose ranks had grown overnight by an influx of other protest groups from the suburbs into the city center. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot issued a strong warning to what she now called the mob that they either cease and desist or face appropriate action by Chicago's police department. Her statement was widely circulated on social media. Similar disturbances then broke out in many other American cities, most notably New York, Washington, D.C., Central Los Angeles, and St. Louis. In response, President Trump issued an emergency order to mobilize the National Guard in these and other cities, which now include Detroit, Seattle, Atlanta, and Jacksonville, Florida. Our sources confirm that not a single governor or mayor has requested help from the federal government. The president's order included the imposition of a mandatory curfew in all of these cities. All protesters have been ordered to abandon their activities and to return to their homes. In a move that unilaterally imposed martial law in these cities, the president ordered that each city be shut down from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. and that federal agents, the National Guard, and local law enforcement would be tasked with enforcing the curfew. Trump asked for time on every major television and cable network to read the order directly to the country. We are still in a war with these people, he concluded. We are going to win this war. He took no questions from reporters. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer issued a joint statement condemning the Gestapo tactics of the president's approach. This is clearly a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act. The government cannot use military personnel against the citizens of this country unless the president has declared martial law, which he has not. Good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on Wednesday, October 14th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. We have breaking news from the White House. Vice President Mike Pence has tested positive for COVID-19. We are now just learning that the vice president first tested positive when given a rapid test yesterday before meeting with the coronavirus task force. Since the rapid tests are notorious for false readings, he submitted samples for the more accurate PCR test. 
The results came back positive this morning. Unconfirmed reports state that the vice president had been feeling a little under the weather, but as everyone he comes in contact with is tested all the time, there had been no cause for alarm. We will keep you updated as soon as we can get more information. Good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on Thursday, October 15th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. It was announced today by Chief Justice John Roberts that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been granted a temporary leave of absence at the start of the 2020 term of the Supreme Court in order to continue cancer treatments. In a short statement, Chief Justice Roberts stated that Justice Ginsburg is someone who cannot do something halfway. She realizes that her ongoing treatments are a drain on her energy and that she would rather take some time off than not be able to devote herself to the important duties of the court. We continue to wish her the best. In other news, Vice President Pence has been taken to Walter Reed Medical Center. Reports are that his condition has worsened overnight. The White House has put a lid on information about the Vice President, but our sources have confirmed that he has indeed been admitted to the hospital. Good afternoon. It's 12 p.m. on Friday, October 16th. This is Bill Beckley reporting. We have breaking news. We regret to inform you that Vice President Mike Pence passed away late this morning from complications of COVID-19. This is an unprecedented turn of events. Never in the history of the United States has a candidate for president or vice president either died or been incapacitated before Election Day, let alone two. The strength of our Constitution is certainly being tested to the limits, stated presidential historian Michael Beschloss. The 25th Amendment to the Constitution, ratified in 1967, was put in place specifically to deal with just these issues as a direct result of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Imagine the chaos that the country would be going through if this had not been addressed in the Constitution. Imagine indeed... This turn of events sets in motion a very specific process. Under Section 2 of the 25th Amendment, whenever there is a vacancy in the office of the vice president, the president shall nominate a vice president who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote of both houses of Congress. With Election Day only 18 days away, time is of the essence and could make or break the president's chances for re-election. It's going to be a busy weekend at the White House. That's a wrap for the fourth installment of It Could Happen. The country is without a vice president, making Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi next in line if anything were to happen to the president, a thought that is certainly keeping Republicans in Washington, D.C. and across the nation up at night. Once again, we want to remind you that we are only presenting one of literally thousands of scenarios that could play out this election year. We do not want anything unfortunate to happen to anyone from either party. We're merely exploring one of thousands of possible storylines that could happen. Tune into the next episode to see how the 2020 election could play out.